Well, I do invite you this morning to open your Bible first to First Timothy in the New Testament and chapter 5. In just a moment, I'll read that. So if you have a Bible with you, First Timothy chapter 5, you can find your place there. This week, the Senate Judiciary Committee began hearings entitled Protecting Pride, Defending the Civil Rights of LGBTQ Plus Americans. And as part of that hearing, former NCAA swimmer and women's sport advocate Riley Gaines delivered kind of this emotional testimony about her experience competing against a trans-identified man and the dangers of allowing women or men to encroach on women's private spaces. Riley Gaines is a former collegiate swimmer from the University of Kentucky, a graduate who, if you followed this whole kind of controversy, last year swam in the NCAA championships against Leah Thomas, transgendered, woman, and where, where this Leah won uh, significant awards, and now there has kind of been an outcry, a protest among some in women's sports about the kind of ruin of women's sports. As she was giving this testimony of this unfair advantage, she teared up as she recalled how the NCAA forced her and her fellow athletes to share a locker room with Thomas. She said this, Defending women's rights is not anti-anyone. Believing in biology is not bigoted. Allowing, uh, following the science that there are only two sexes and that there are very real and important differences between the two sexes is not hateful. It's a fact, end quote. It's interesting to see some of this controversy and backlash. We see it. In fact, every day, it seems... There are headlines revealing the profound confusion in our day of what it means to be a man or a woman. It's no exaggeration, I think. It's no exaggeration to say that in the history of civilization, at least in the West, there has never been so much confusion on what it means to be male or female. And even if those categories still exist. This is a central issue in our society today that we face as a church increasingly. And we need to be very clear and confident in what the Bible teaches about men and women, about biological sex and gender, about biblical manhood and womanhood what it means to be a man or woman in the image of God, which will be part of my specific focus in this last part this morning. As I said, this is the conclusion. This is part 18 of our series, God's Grand Design, the Beauty of Biblical Complementarity. The origins and aim of this series was not to deal specifically with transgenderism or gender dysphoria or homosexuality per se, perhaps more modestly, dealing with God's design of men and women and how this functions in the church 
and in the family. However, these issues are inseparable and overlapping because they are rooted in God's design of male and female. Two sexual kinds made in the image of God. And this complementary design, we've called it, is relevant in issues of gender and sexuality and in marriage and roles and functions in the church and the family. They are really inseparable. Again, by complementarity, in case you're new or just joining us here, what we mean by that is that men and women are equal in personhood and dignity as made in the image of God, yet different and design in different in design and in function, a divine fittedness, we've called it, that is this complementarity of combining in a way to enhance and emphasize the qualities of each other. So in this series, we began back at the beginning in the creation account itself, that's where you have to begin, where God made Adam, man, male, and female in his image. And then we saw, and I still am struck by this, and I hope you are struck as you open the pages, the first pages of the Bible, that there is a yet seemingly a second creation account, sort of, that there is an entire chapter. We don't have that much on creation. We probably wish we had more details. We don't have that much, but we have an entire chapter in Genesis, chapter 2, on the different creations and functions of the man and woman. The main point of that entire chapter is to describe at least the creation, the difference between the man and the woman and how they correspond and complement each other. That's really remarkable because it's important. That's the foundation that's the foundation of understanding, of our understanding of man and woman in this complementary design. So we, we noticed that, and then what we've done in this series is then to trace the outworkings of that design through the rest of the Bible. Kind of a whole Bible look. So here's my summary in two points. That's all. I'm tempted to re-preach it. I won't do that. This morning, it won't be a comprehensive review. It's not my point here, but I will just give you this two-point summary of what we have traced through the scriptures. And, and before I just give that, we, our primary context, what we have looked at in this series has been God's people, the spiritual family, the church, and marriage and family. That's been our focus. And from Genesis 2 and on through the Bible, here are the two points. One... If you remember this way back at the beginning, the benevolent headship of the man, the benevolent headship of the man, the head, that's Bible language, just using Bible language. Headship implies some level of leadership. Yes, some level of authority and responsibility. The headship of the man. Someone described the man in his role as the guardian. I think that's a good description. A guardian to protect, to lead, to provide. In fact, Adam was charged with guarding the sanctuary, the temple earthly sanctuary, the garden sanctuary there in Genesis chapter 2. This role, the headship of man. 
And then we just we traced that through the scripture and we saw the consistent pattern in teaching. In fact, let me let me say this. Be impressed with this. In every phase of redemptive history. From the garden to the patriarchs, to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the nation of Israel, to the ministry of Jesus, to the New Testament church. Those charged with guarding and leading the people of God have been men. All the way through. No variation. And as we come today in our context, in churches, pastors, elders, overseers are charged, qualified men to guard the flock, to provide, to protect, to teach. And in the family, husbands and fathers, as we saw last week in Ephesians 5. So that's the first point of view. We saw it all the way through. Second, relating to the woman. Number two, the essential, what we called, for lack of a better word, helpership of the woman. And that's just drawn from that description there in Genesis 2 in the creation of the woman, part of the very definition, creation, I will make a helper suitable for him. This helpership, which is a dignified title in the Bible. We saw it's used of God. God is our helper. Here it's not demeaning. It's not meant to be demeaning. That this essential role here of assisting, partnering with the man in her unique design. That's most obvious in the beginning in the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. To fill the earth. It's essential. Man and the woman in this complementary fashion. They cannot do that by themselves. Yet they have different roles in that very purpose. And then once again we just trace the pattern. All through the Bible. And what we saw is this consistent pattern. We saw women in the Old Testament. Whether married or single. Their indispensable ministry as part of God's kingdom. We noted those. We came into the New Testament, saw the ministry of Jesus, how he valued women. They were his followers, their indispensable ministry there, this gospel ministry. And in the New Testament church, workers in the Lord, we saw these examples. And certainly in the family. So that when we traced out this helpership, and at times it's expressed as submission in certain roles within the church and in the family, that that was not a demeaning attribute or character, but part of this helpership, using gifts and talents under God's protective authority as part of God's purpose. Again, I want to emphasize and highlight, and I hope, women, you've heard me all through this, that as we talk about this, this subject, often the focus can be on what women can't do. It's not hopefully been our entire focus here at all, but really valuing the indispensable role of women in the church. Kevin DeYoung, in that book I mentioned last week, a helpful little book, just highlighted this. So let me just read it. Women can minister to the sick the dying, the mentally impaired, and the physically handicapped. They can share their faith, share their resources, open their homes to strangers. They can write, counsel, mentor, organize, administrate, design, plan, and come alongside others. They can pray. 
They can serve on committees of the church. They can come alongside the elders and deacons in difficult situations involving women or those needing a woman's perspective. They can minister to single moms, new moms, breast cancer survivors, abusive victims. They can bring meals, sew curtains, send care packages, throw baby showers. They can do sports ministry, lead women's Bible studies, teach systematic theology to other women, plan mission trips. They can teach children. They can raise their kids to the glory of God. They can embrace singleness as a gift from God. I pray for women who love to cook and quilt and work in the nursery. I pray for women, not male elders, but women to counsel almost divorced wives, mentor young ladies, teach the Bible and good doctrine to other women. Oh, how we need women who love the Bible and good doctrine. Women can help widows. They can care for the struggling with remorse, with the remorse of abortion. They can show the glory of the gospel and racial and ethnic reconciliation. They can do all of the above cross-culturally and unreached places and with unwanted peoples of the world. In other words, there are 10,000 things women can be doing in ministry. Pastors especially need to make this point abundantly and repetitively clear. I hope we have. So, there's the summary. That's the consistent pattern and practice and teaching through the whole Bible. So this series has not been just trying to focus on one or two passages and some disputed words and meanings, but the entire panorama of Scripture. This view of men and women is not based on culture, but on the design of God. And as we saw last Sunday, consummated in Christ in the church, pointing to something far greater than we ever realized. It is significant. First Timothy 5, look there with me. It's a long intro, but First Timothy 5, just verses 1 and 2, very simply. Let me read those. I'll put them on the screen if you don't have that in front of you. Paul instructing his co-worker here, Timothy. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. The younger men as brothers the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. That's a pretty basic instruction, nothing really difficult there. This is Paul, remember First Timothy, Paul's instructions to Timothy, who he left at the church at Ephesus, to really set it in order, because it has been damaged by false teaching, and he's giving him instruction to pass on to the church. Now, Timothy is relatively young, but he is Paul's representative. So he's pastoral, but he's not just a local pastor. He's serving pastorally, but he's serving on behalf of the Apostle Paul with Paul's authority. And Timothy has to be, in setting this church in order, and setting up elders and other instructions that we've already seen in this book, he has to instruct, and he has to correct, and he has to exhort. In fact, back to chapter 4 verse 6 he told timothy you will be a good servant constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which we have been following in verse 11 prescribe and teach these things timothy verse 13 until i come give attention to reading to exhortation to teaching timothy so he he has to do this in his role but then paul gives some pastoral wisdom of how you do this not heavy-handed not asserting your authority all the time, not lording it over people, not authoritarian, but with respect 
gentleness as with family members. You see it? I want you to rebuke an older man. I want you to appeal, to exhort him as, a, as you would a father. And the younger men as, as brothers. The older women as mothers. And the younger women as sisters. In all purity, he says. Now that's pretty basic. But what's underneath that is significant. There are two realities, two assumptions that are underneath this exhortation. So let me give them to you. Here's the two realities that inform this instruction. Here's the first one. <clears throat> the church is a spiritual family. And it corresponds to roles and relationships of a biological family. Now, we've said this at different points in our series. I stressed this when we talked about singleness. How the church, the spiritual family, even supersedes the biological family. Jesus came to establish this family. We are a church family. And I said it's, it's the most common metaphor given in the New Testament. Most common metaphor to describe us, to describe the church. Brethren. Paul often uses that Adolfoi word. Just, it's a family word, plural. Brothers and sisters. That's his common metaphor. So in this spiritual family, as he highlights here, we need spiritual fathers. Spiritual fathers. Some of those will be elders. That specific role that he talks about in chapter Three, mature, godly men who helped protect and instruct and guard. We need spiritual fathers. In fact, this connection between biological family and church spiritual family is so strong that back in chapter 3, we just turn back maybe a page in your Bible, back in chapter 3 when Paul is giving these qualifications for elders, who are men, as we saw, they must be qualified. Not any man. They must be qualified. And part of that, he connects right back to the family. Verses 4 and 5. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? You see the connection. There's a connection between family, biological, and his role as a father, and his role as an overseer, elder, as a spiritual father, because it's the same kind of function, one in the family, this instruction and protection and provision, now in the spiritual family. You see the tight connection there. That's why you can't separate out this complementary in view between family and church, because the church is the spiritual family, and the same characteristics are called for. So we need spiritual fathers, and we need spiritual mothers. We don't emphasize this enough. We need spiritual mothers, as he says here, the older women as mothers. We need godly, mature women serving in this way of nurturing and training others and other women. In fact, in this chapter, chapter 5, as he continues on instruction, he's going to give a lot of instructions about how to care for widows because we're a family. And if widows don't have a family to care for them that is a biological, then, then we serve as the family. Yeah, so lots of instruction there. And in giving those instruction, he 
He talks about widows who the church should help here who exhibit these qualities. And just listen to them down in verse 10. Here's a description of a spiritual mother having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. That's what we need in the church. So we saw in our series, we looked at Titus chapter 2, that remarkable chapter where Paul instructs various groups in the church, including older women, spiritual mothers. Remember, we noted how interesting that text was. As Paul is telling Timothy to exhort these different groups, he exhorts older women to be the ones who train, who teach the younger women. That's that spiritual mother role. It may not have an official office or title with it, but it's still indispensable in the church. So, and all of us, we relate as brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, which means that our Our primary relationships within the church are not strictly authority submission relationships. There's spheres where there's authority submission. We've looked at that. But our primary relationship are brothers and sisters. And so as we thought about that and we thought about, yes, there are places of of right submission. We've looked at that. But The application that somehow tries to say, well, in the church, all women should submit to all men. It's just so misplaced. It's wrong. No, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our primary relationship. Yes, there are severes where authority and submission apply, but this is basic. So that's that's the first great reality that we have fleshed out at some level in our series. The church is a spiritual family. And it's good for us to think when we think of roles and differences with men and women to think in terms of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. I think it's very helpful. Here's the second reality behind Paul's instructions. Paul assumes sexual differentiation in his interactions with the family of God. Again, it's so basic, right? We'll just read right past that. He assumes sexual differentiation in his interactions with the family of God. So he's, he's instructing Timothy in this kind of pastoral wisdom. Don't treat each person in an identical way. But in a relational, gender-specific way. You see it? Older men as you would fathers and younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. There's a difference. He expects Timothy to know that. There's a difference between how you treat a father or brother or mother and a sister. And part of that distinction is along these gender-specific lines. So treat people in a relational gender-specific ways that are appropriate. And he adds there at the end of verse 2, very helpfully, as he's telling Timothy to treat Younger women as sisters, and then he adds that very helpful phrase, in all purity. In all purity. What a, what a timely word. Right, probably more timely today. With all we read about abuse, sexual abuse in the church, or exploitation of women, or moral failure, 
What a timely word. Treat them as sisters, yet with all purity, moral uprightness. Right? But there's a differentiation. So this is a simple text, but, but it's right here. As, as I try to close this series out now, I just want for a few moments here to explore this sexual differentiation a little further. As I mentioned, in this series, these 17 weeks, we have mostly restricted our study of complementarity of men and women to the roles and relationships in the church, the spiritual family, the people of God, both Old and New Testaments, and to marriage, marriage and the family. We've done that because the focus of the Bible is that. All the instructions in the Bible revolve around that. Marriage, family, and the church, the people of God. So that has been our almost exclusive focus this morning. As I try to wrap this series up, I want to cautiously venture a little further into an understanding of the essence of biblical manhood and womanhood that is universally true based on God's design bit risky. I'm going to venture it briefly this morning. That is, we are not merely male and female biologically, but there is a maleness and a femaleness, a masculinity and a femininity, a manhood and a womanhood that is inseparable from our biology, but goes to the core of our personhood. What does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman? And I say it's a little risky. It's a little risky because the Bible doesn't give precise definitions. It gives us descriptions that we've been looking at. It gives us pointers. So we want to be cautious. So I, I feel a little more comfortable doing this after 17 weeks of Bible of just being in the Bible, right? We've seen a lot. Biblical manhood and womanhood. So this is how I want to just conclude our series. Why, why is it important to at least address this? Because I think without it, the so-called, quote, rules of complementarianism or the functions of complementarianism, like headship and submission or male eldership that I just mentioned, they can feel arbitrary or unfair. Is there, is there anything underneath that? Any reasons for this? Or is it just arbitrary? Kevin DeYoung, in that book I just mentioned, he gives a, what he calls a homely analogy. And I thought this was appropriate. He says, suppose you have two identical basketballs. <laughs> this is appropriate. Will and I are talking about basketballs. We need one basketball for indoor use. So he goes on to say this. One, you, you suppose you have two identical basketballs. One you reserve for outdoor use and one you set aside for indoor use. The rules of complementarianism are not like the arbitrary labeling of two basketballs. They both work the same and can essentially do the same thing, except that God has decreed that the two basketballs be set apart for different functions. That's a capricious complementarianism held together by an admirable submission of Scripture. But in time, it will lack any coherent or compelling reason for the existence of different, quote, rules. 
Is it just arbitrary? Is there something underneath the design? I remember hearing a, a pastor, I won't name names, once speaking on these issues and saying about complementary, about maybe authority and special. Well, that's what the Bible says. I don't like it, but that's what it says. And I just fear it won't be too long before that pastor will say, well, that's really not what it says because I don't like it. Is there anything underneath this? <laughs> now, here, here we're just stepping a toe. We're crossing in to the realm of natural law. Natural law, natural theology. That is, by natural law, we mean moral truth. God has revealed in the created order and made accessible to human minds. We do believe there is natural revelation, a natural or moral law. Gender, that is manhood and womanhood, is an aspect of the natural law that is undeniably real. So we may not be able to precisely define manhood and womanhood or the differences, but we all know them. We know them. We know there's a difference. We could quote all kinds of studies and statistics about those differences, but we know it. It is undeniably real, unavoidable, which, by the way, I, I think that's hopeful in all this gender confusion and gender dysphoria, just as you're seeing in this committee hearing this pushback, because I do think praying nature is going to win out. It's just undeniably real. I, I listened uh, just recently to a fascinating interview uh, with Abigail Favalli, who's a professor at Notre Dame, and she's written this new book called The Genesis of Gender. But what's fascinating about the interview is she described her, her kind of journey. She was raised in an evangelical home, embraced that, went into college. She wanted to study women's studies and think more along egalitarian lines of the Bible, and then quickly became disillusioned with the Bible and deconstructed her faith and became more involved in feminist and gender theory. In fact, studied that, graduated that, began to teach that, and then abruptly returned to the Christian faith and denied all that. And so the question the interviewer asked is, what changed you? You know what her answer was? I became a mother. <laughs> really? Becoming a mother changed me, she said. Because this sexual difference is real. I, there's just no denying it anymore. And then she had a boy <laughs> to top it off and raising a boy. There's something different. There's something real here about this differentiation. There's something real about femaleness that's different than maleness. They're not just constructs that she had been so bought into. So I found that fascinating. It's connected to biology. There's something real here. Is that real? Now, I would argue that the authors of Scripture, they did not construct gender roles, but they recognized them. as God's creation design that's there. So let, let me do this first. Before I just try to give a, a simple definition, let me do this first. J just give you some biblical pointers to a natural law 
to the natural law of gender. So the Bible is pointing to this, what we call a natural law. We've seen a few of these. So let me remind you or maybe see them for the first time. Just we might read over these, but that's what the Bible is doing. So here's one that we already saw that I'll go back to. First Corinthians 11 and verse 14 and 15. Remember this? We all on this head coverings and all that. I'm not going to repeat any of that or all of that. We we just we can go back and listen to that. But it's at the end that he gets to in verse 14 when he's talking about what's on your head and covering your head and what's appropriate. He says, does not even nature teach you that if a man has long hair is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I want to talk about the specifics. Just this phrase, does not even nature teach you this? Doesn't nature, he's appealing to what is instinctively right or wrong, this moral law that's part of the creation design by God. That's what Paul means by nature when he uses that concept. And here, it actually deals with the appearance of gender distinction. Isn't that remarkable? So he's pointing again to this natural law as it applies to gender and here in the terms of even appearance. Again, I think that's why in the law, the Mosaic law, in the book of Deuteronomy, you might know this text, one of those says, quote, a woman, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, those things differ in cultures, don't they? And cultural expressions of what that looks like differs, but there's something there, is what he's saying, that nature teaches us. That's one. Romans. Can't exclude Romans here. Romans chapter 1. We saw this in the context of Paul talking about God handing over people for their inexcusable idolatry, which is part of natural law also, that they're without excuse. But he gets to the topic of homosexuality. And again, he uses a similar language. Chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to a degrading passions for their females exchange the natural there it is function for what that which is against nature parafusen against nature and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function same word of the female and burned in their desires towards one another male with male committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error Again, he is saying from a natural law perspective, nature teaches, it's against nature. That physiology, your body, the way it's constructed, physiology comes with it divine moral injunctions. So that you know this is wrong. That's what he says. It's against nature. So that our body, our physical body, is not incidental to our identity, to our purpose. It is inseparable. First Thessalonians, again, this is one you perhaps just read right over and not think in these terms. It's not Paul's main point, but just, just listen to it. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul uses two analogies. As he's speaking their ministry among the Thessalonians, he says, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Describes himself as a nursing 
mother. You know what that's like, right? And then in verse 11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. So Paul is assuming basic traits of motherhood and basic traits of fatherhood. He's appealing to those. Basic traits of motherhood, gentle, affectionate, sacrificial. Traits of fatherhood, exhortation, encouragement, leadership. Now again, it's not that those are mutually exclusive. Paul says we became like a nursing mother. Yes, we, we could take these on, but there is something there that characterizes motherhood and fatherhood that you all know. This general demeanor corresponds with the inclinations of each gender. Then, then one last one, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's final exhortations to the Corinthians, verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm, act like men, be strong. <laughs> Let all that you do be done in love. Now again, he's applying that to all Christians. But he appeals to this behavior that characterizes men. Act like men. I mean, well, in the context here, he's mainly talking about courage, strength, and courage. And yes, women can demonstrate that, but it'll be different than the way men demonstrate that. But this is a characteristic of men. So you can say things like, act like men. Remember when uh, David was passing on the throne to Solomon? David's about to die, Solomon. Remember his exhortation to him? But he said, show yourself a man. Be strong. Be courageous. That's, that's a characteristic. So, anyway, th those are pointers. That there is this natural law that, that applies to gender that is there. There's real distinctions that are rooted in biology but go to the very personhood of who we are. So, let me finish. Toward a definition. Don't you hate that? And you're toward something and don't ever arrive toward a definition. It's just, this is not the last word. And I'm going to borrow language from others. So it's not even my words. But can we get at anything of the essence of manhood and womanhood? It's not simple. Back in 1991, uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem published this big volume. We just call it the Big Blue Book. Um, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's really an excellent volume. Lots of, lots of different contributors, lots of articles in there. I've used it as a good resource for me. But in that, in that book, uh, John Piper himself gave his own definition of masculinity and femininity, manhood and womanhood. Let, let me just read them to you. Here's how he, he defined it. He said, at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to man's differing relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Now, there are some things about that definition that are helpful in certain contexts. But personally, for me, I think that definition, which has become kind of a standard in a lot of complementarian circles, is too limited. It's too specific. That is, it, it doesn't, it seems to only exist, manhood and woman only seem to exist in relation to each other. 
not independently. Like you, you have to have a man to be a woman and you have to have a woman to be a man. It almost requires marriage. And it, it puts to me too much emphasis on authority and submission. That's an aspect. That's where there's parts of it that are helpful. So, so I think we can do better. <laughs> I love John Piper. I've learned so much from him and continue to do so. But that one I find a little wanting, that definition, and can be problematic. So let me give you another. And this is not my own. This is from Patrick Schreiner, Associate Professor in New Testament at Midwestern Theological Seminary. And I'm just going to give it to you here, and I don't have a lot of time to unpack it. Just say a couple things. He says the fundamental, he's, he's borrowing, by the way. I feel okay to borrow from him because he's borrowing from someone else and just kind of building on it. He says the fundamental meaning of masculinity is sonship, brotherly love, and potentiality toward paternity, fatherhood. The fundamental meaning of femininity is daughterhood, sisterly love, and potentiality toward maternity, motherhood. Now, again, I, said, I, wish, I wish I had a lot more time to kind of unfold that a little bit. What I, what I appreciate about this attempt at a definition is the, the, the primary emphasis is not authority and submission. But it's familial, family, just what we were talking about. That's the dominant metaphor, even for the church. But it's going beyond that and just saying familial, brothers and sisters. So that this expression of manhood and womanhood includes everyone. You don't have to be married. It includes children, it includes singles, it includes disabled, it includes married. But it's not dependent on marriage. And it has this virtue of love. So, so beyond just authority and submission, this dominant virtue of love, brotherly love, sisterly love, that will be expressed different ways. And sometimes, sometimes that love, depending on the relationship, will be reflected in leading and protecting and sometimes in receiving and nurturing. So, that, yeah, there's parts of Piper's definition that are helpful in certain contexts. But this is broader. And I find it more helpful that we're brothers and sisters. That we, we act, that we think in terms of, when you think of terms of manhood and womanhood, we're thinking brothers, sister, we're thinking father, mother. Especially that last part. And this is the part he's borrowing from somebody else. This potentiality toward either paternity or maternity. And the reason I think that's helpful is because it's recognizing something that's just undeniable. That our gender or our manhood or woman is inseparable from our biology. Right? Those are, we're, we're created male and female biologically. We're, we're different biologically. And it's connecting it back to that creation mandate, this primary purpose of creating us biologically, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, tending towards fatherhood and motherhood. But here, that key word, potentiality. Paternity and maternity are here in this definition defined more in a spiritual, natural sense. That is not that you have to be parents. In fact, you don't. But more in the sense of what that means in a spiritual sense or a natural sense, it's more like, Schreiner says, a calling. Motherhood and fatherhood are analogical concepts that can be applied to civil, professional, and ecclesiastical contexts. Here's what he says. I'll quote him. 
Even though every woman and man is not called to marry and to bear physical children, every woman and man, whether married or unmarried, is called upon to be a biological, psychological, or spiritual mother or father. Consider a man who, want, who fathers four different children by four different mothers, abandoning each mother and child in turn before moving on to a new sexual conquest. Is such a man a father? Well, in one sense, yes. But in a deeper, more important sense, no, because the meaning of paternity is not just procreation, but provision, protection, faithful love. Now, consider a woman who is biologically unable to have children but who, with her husband, welcomes foster children into her home, pouring out love and nurture into their lives. Is such a woman a mother? Well, in a biological sense, no, but because the meaning of motherhood is nurture and sacrificial, self-giving love, she is more truly a mother than sometimes someone who bears a child before neglecting it until it leaves home. Thus, a woman who never bears a child does not cease to be a woman, nor is her womanhood diminished, even if she never cares for children. For she maintains the capacity and the freedom to live in a maternal way towards others in need of maternal nurture. In this larger sense, all women are called to motherhood and all men are called to fatherhood. Pressing this definition forward, manhood in general is directed outward, external agency, while womanhood in general is directed inward, internal agency. Inward directness does not mean self-focused. Outward directness doesn't mean others-focused. Men are typically, though not always, initiators, builders, protectors of communities, while women are formers, nurturers, sustainers in community. To return to the physical, a man may deeply love his children, but it's different than the way the mom loves the children. So, you can wrestle with that <laughs> and need to say a lot more probably about that and the differences and how those differences are expressed. But I think just in general, it's helpful. So to think of what's the essence of manhood and womanhood, to think in terms of father and mother. Again, it doesn't have to do with biologically, it'd be father and mother, but those characteristics, those traits in how we relate to one another. And that will carry you, whether it's in church, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your workplace or other places or with friends. That basic understanding of manhood and womanhood based on God's design. We are different, beautifully so. We are complementary difference to enhance one another. There's a mutuality, just like in fathers and mothers, in the best sense, so too with men and women. Let me finish. Through this whole series, there's room, there's room for different conclusions in application. Right? How, do you, how do you live out this manhood and womanhood? There, there's room for differences, but to, under, to embrace this essential difference. Again, let me close with this author. Sexual difference is the way of God's wisdom and grace. It was there in the garden, there in the life of ancient Israel, there in the gospels, there in the early church, will be there at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and was there in the mind of God before any of this began. To be sure, manhood and womanhood is not the message of the gospel, but it is never far from the storyline of redemptive history. The givenness of being male or female is also a gift, a gift to embrace, a natural order of fittedness and function that embodies the way the world is supposed to work and the way we ought to follow Christ in the world. Let us then, as male and female image bearers, delight in this design 
and seek to promote it with our lives and with our lips, all that is good and true and beautiful in God making us men and women. Amen. May we believe God's word and his good design. Let me finish with just reading. This is segue to next Sunday. <laughs> I thought I would transition us this way. Psalm 19, I'll put it on the screen. Believing God's word, God's design is good. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. May we believe that. So if you want more about that, come back next Sunday for our summer series on God's word, the preciousness of his word. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, help us to see and to embrace and to love your good design. To believe what we read in your word, that it is perfect. It is precious. And what you say about men and women is a good gift. Help us to embrace it, to not chafe against it, to love what you said, to believe it, and help us now. Give us wisdom to live it out, to live it out in our church to live it out in our marriages, in our families, to live it out in our workplaces and among associates and friends in a way that redounds to your glory. We ask through Jesus' name, amen.